there, it's Nim, and this is a spoonful of medicine, topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. On this episode, we're taking a look at congenital long QT syndrome. Now, it's often thrown around as a differential when a child comes in with a syncopal episode, palpitations, or even a seizure. So it's something that's important to understand and know why we're thinking about it as a differential. It's also important to know about because it does carry a risk of sudden cardiac death. Also, knowing why long QT syndromes make us nervous is an important part of cardiac physiology. So join me today as we take a look at congenital long QT syndrome. So what is congenital long QT syndrome? Well, it's a disorder of ventricular myocardial repolarization. It's a channelopathy that is characterized by prolonged QT intervals that predispose to ventricular arrhythmias, and these can progress onto ventricular tachycardia or tussards, and they also carry an increased risk of sudden cardiac death. Congenital long QT is a distinct entity from acquired long QT syndrome. Acquired long QT is an issue of prolonged myocardial repolarization due to an external cause. It could be medications such as antiarrhythmics of class A and class 3, antibiotics such as quinolones and macrolides, antipsychotics like haloperidol, risperidone, quetiapine, antidepressants like TCAs and SSRIs, antiemetics like ondansetron, antifungals and antihistamines. It can be from electrolytes or hypothyroidism, and it can also be from things like intracranial disease or myocardial ischemia. Now, acquired long QT, because it is a different pathology and a different approach and management, we're not really going to focus on it today. Our primary aim is to look at congenital long QT syndrome. Let's start off with the case of Sian. She's a 15-year-old girl who's been referred to the pediatric outpatient clinic by her GP. The letter from the GP says that Sian had a funny turn unexpectedly at school two weeks ago. It occurred after a fire alarm went off unexpectedly. She felt faint, clammy, and then proceeded to collapse and had a few limb-jerking movements. She promptly regained consciousness and there was no incontinence or tongue biting. She was taken to the ED after this episode, where she had a normal examination, her bloods were normal, her chest x-ray was normal, and her ECG was sinus rhythm with a QT interval of 482 milliseconds. Xi'an has had a febrile convulsion at the age of 18 months, and she tells you that on reflection, she has fainted on about five occasions. Well, they've mostly been when she's been emotional or when she's been exercising. Xi'an describes herself as a little bit of an anxious girl, but says that she has a sensation of her heart racing every few weeks, and that doesn't really correlate to when she's feeling anxious. She's not on any medications, she's not allergic to anything, and there's no family history of epilepsy or seizures. However, she does tell you that her aunt collapsed and died at the age of 28, but no one really remembers why. On examination, her height and weight and general appearance is normal. She has a normal cardiovascular exam, a normal respiratory exam, and normal neurological exam. Now, while in this case, there are a lot of differentials, including a epileptic type seizure, a vasovagal syncope, a panic attack, or other cardiac arrhythmia, 
There's points in the story that really make us suspicious for a pathology like long QT syndrome. What exactly are those points? Well, listen on and let's find out. But before all that, I'm going to backtrack a little bit and start with the basics. The genetics and pathophysiology of congenital long QT. So with the genetics, there are about mutations in 17 genes that have been identified to cause congenital long QT syndrome. But don't worry, you don't have to remember all 17 genes because about 80% of cases are accounted for by three mutations. Long QT1 is caused by a mutation in the KCNQ1 gene, which codes for a potassium channel. And this accounts for about 35 to 40% of long QT syndrome cases. Long QT2 is caused by a mutation in the KCNH2 gene, which also encodes a potassium channel, but a different one than that of long QT1. Long QT2 accounts for about 25 to 35% of long QT syndrome cases. And then finally, long QT3 is caused by mutation in the SCN5A gene, which codes for a sodium channel. And this accounts for about 5 to 10% of long QT syndrome cases. By and large, congenital long QT is inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion. And these are usually cases that are restricted to cardiac pathology or long QT being the isolated issue. However, you also have forms of long QT that can be inherited in an autosomal recessive manner, such as Jarvell-Lang-Nielsen syndrome, which is a autosomal recessive homozygous condition of long QT1, which carries a more malignant cause, presents a bit earlier, and is also associated with sensory neural deafness. So, how common is congenital long QT syndrome? Well, the prevalence rates are distinguished or divided into those who are genotype positive and phenotype positive, as well as those who are genotype positive but phenotype negative. So those who are genotype positive and phenotype positive have a prevalence of about 1 in 2,000 live births. And those who are genotype positive but phenotype negative are about 1 in 1,000 births. So this makes congenital long QT one of the most common channelopathies that we have. Now let's take a look at the pathophysiology of long QT syndrome and why we are so hung up about this QT interval. To do so, we need to take a little trip down memory lane and have a look at the action potential of cardiac muscles. So get ready for a quick recap. In phase four, where there is a resting membrane potential, sodium and calcium channels are closed, potassium rectifier channels are open, and they keep the resting membrane potential at a stable negative 90 millivolts. So when the action potential starts in phase zero, there's a rapid sodium influx through fast opening sodium channels. This causes the membrane to depolarize. Once the membrane reaches a certain potential, the sodium channels close and there's a transient potassium channels that open. And so there's a potassium efflux that returns the membrane potential to about zero millivolts. And that is phase one. Phase two is the plateau phase, where there's an influx of calcium through L-type calcium channels. And so the efflux of potassium outside of the cell is balanced electrically with the calcium entering the cell, meaning that the membrane potential itself plateaus. In phase three, or the repolarization, calcium channels close, 
but the delayed rectifier potassium channels remain open. And so there's a next efflux of ions out of the cell cell. And this causes the membrane potential to reduce and return to its negative 90 millivolts. So relating back to congenital long QT, mutations in the potassium channels, which are seen in long QT1 and long QT2, cause longer for the potassium efflux to happen in phase three. This takes longer for the membrane potential to repolarize, and therefore the repolarization phase is longer, which means that connotates to a prolonged QT interval on the ECG. Mutations in long QT3, which are the sodium channelopathy, sodium influx during repolarization means it takes longer for the potassium efflux to offset this, and thus the repolarization of the membrane again takes longer. So now that we know why the QT interval is prolonged, what makes it so bad? Well, a long QT interval means there's more chance for early after depolarizations. And early after depolarizations are single or multiple oscillations of the membrane potential in phase two, or that plateau phase, or phase three, which is that repolarization phase, that are due to either a sodium or a calcium influx. Eventually, these early after depolarizations can reach a threshold in amplitude and then cause trigger activity. This triggered activity means that the cell depolarizes again, there's additional action potentials, and that can lead to ventricular premature depolarizations, which can then go on to initiate polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, tassades, collapse, and potentially sudden cardiac death. And so it's easy to understand and see why a long QT interval is not good. Now let's go back clinically. How do people with congenital long QT present? Well, to be honest, it's highly variable. The textbook or classic symptoms of congenital long QT is triggered syncope or syncope followed by generalized seizures. Typically, they follow exercise or exertion, basically anything with an increase in sympathetic activation. These syncopal or seizure events are usually due to polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. And some children may even be misdiagnosed as epilepsy when they actually have long QT syndrome. Children can also present with unexplained arrhythmogenic syncope, which is essentially a collapse out of the blue for really no good reason. Note, sudden cardiac death is another textbook sign of long QT syndrome. However, practically, it is an uncommon initial presentation. In asymptomatic individuals, long QT syndrome may be detected after an ECG has been done for a general checkup or as a part of a sports medical, for example. Asymptomatic individuals may also be diagnosed due to an affected family member and either their surveillance ECG or their family-specific genetic variant testing has identified them as having long QT syndrome. The age of diagnosis varies between long QT syndrome types and also on the database you look at, but usually they're below 30 years of age with an average age being between about 8 to 12 years. Syncope and seizures are the most common symptom, Fetal arrhythmias are uncommon and cardiac arrest is the least common initial presentation. 
Long QT1 most often relates to exercise-induced symptoms or acute arousal-induced symptoms and may be related to exaggerated prolonged QT intervals during exercise and the recovery from exercise. Long QT2 is also associated with acute arousal events such as exercise or emotion or even noise. Long QT3 is not as associated with acute uh, exercise or arousal, but rather has a higher risk of events when people are asleep. Although the majority of cases of Long QT syndrome are isolated cardiac, some or a proportion can be associated with other conditions. Jarvell and Lang-Nielsen syndrome is an autosomal recessive Long QT1 that presents under the age of 3. These children have profound sensory neural deafness and have a higher risk of sudden cardiac death. Anderson-Torwell syndrome is an autosomal dominant form of long QT, which is very rare. It's also known as hypokalemic periodic paralysis with cardiac arrhythmia. And you can appreciate why hypokalemia can be a problem when you already have a long QT syndrome. And finally, it is thought about 5-10% to 10% of those with SIDS or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome or unexplained uterine fetal death may have been caused by Long QT Syndrome. Okay, so we have a patient like Cian who we think could have Long QT Syndrome because the history is suggestive with a sudden collapse following startling from a noise. She has a family history of a sudden cardiac death and she has also palpitations in the past, as well as collapse in the past after exercise. How do we go about investigating her? Key history to elicit is to see if the syncope is suggestive of a cardiac or rhythmogenic cause and not that of a vasovagal syncope. Also, we want to know if there's any family history of premature sudden death under 40 years with an autopsy that's been negative, unexplained motor vehicle accidents, unexplained drownings or generalized seizures because we think could this be misdiagnosed long QT. You also want to know if they have any other comorbid medical conditions such as profound sensory neural deafness. You also want to know if they're on any medications that could prolong a QT interval. Next we need to go on and get an ECG. In kids we use the Bizet formula to calculate QT interval, which is the QT interval equals the measured QT over the square root of the RR interval. Noting that at rates over 120 beats per minute, this becomes increasingly unreliable. Nonetheless, QTC interval sizes of more than 460 milliseconds in a prepubertal child or more than 470 milliseconds in a postpubertal male or 480 milliseconds in a postpubertal female are classed as prolonged. There are two really important things to note. The first being that QTC can be prolonged transiently if an ECG is obtained near the proximity of a vasovagal episode, so this can cause overdiagnosis of long QT syndrome. And secondly, and very importantly, a borderline QT interval in a patient that has a very suspicious history doesn't exclude the diagnosis of long QT because QT intervals can be prolonged in the five minutes of recovery after exercise. And this is highly suggestive of long QT1. And hence, an exercise or stress ECG is the best ECG of diagnosis. The other classic ECG finding or classic arrhythmia associated with long QT is polymorphic VT, 
Autosar de Poix. This is where ventricular rhythm exceeds 100 beats per minute with frequent variations of the QRX axis, morphology, or both. Usually, these are short-lived and terminate spontaneously, but if they are prolonged or lead to ventricular fibrillation, the outcome is not good. And finally, we have genetic testing, which is available to identify specific mutations that result in long QT syndrome. But because there are a lot of limitations given the complexity and the heterogeneity of congenital long QT, we can use the Schwartz score to help guide who to test for genetic mutations. The Schwartz score combines ECG findings, clinical history, and family history to give you an overall score. If the score is equal to or less than 1, the chance of long QT is unlikely and genetic testing is probably not going to be pursued. If the score is intermediate, that is between 1.5 to 3 points, you may still do genetic testing because there's a 5 to 20% chance that this person may have congenital long QT. If there is a high score which is equal to or more than 3.5 points, you are very suspicious of long QT syndrome because 80% of these patients will be genetically positive. The specific mutations that are tested for are the three main genes that cause long QT. And to recap, they are KCNQ1, KCNH2, and SCN5A. Other people who you may also test for congenital long QT are those with a high clinical suspicion of congenital long QT, as well as those who are asymptomatic but have a family member that has been diagnosed and hence are surveillance tested. At the end of the day, it's important to note that a negative test does not exclude a disease if the initial suspicion is high. So if all things are pointing to congenital long QT and there's really no better diagnosis and they're still negative in genetic testing, they could still have congenital long QT caused by one of the other mutations. Let's finish off with looking at how long QT syndrome is managed. Universal beta blocker therapy for all patients with long QT syndrome, regardless of asymptomatic or symptomology, is what is recommended. There is some argument for no beta blocker for asymptomatic patients with a QT interval that's less than 470 milliseconds, but that, at the end of the day, is a specialist decision. The beta blockers of preference are usually propanolol or nodolol, and they decrease the risk of syncope and sudden cardiac death and they seem to give the most benefit for those with congenital long QT1, especially those with Lang-Nielsen syndrome, which is the most malignant form of congenital long QT. In long QT syndrome, it is thought that beta blockers help maximally by reducing sympathetic stimulation, thereby preventing long QT in especially long QT1 after exercise, where this population is at increased risk of prolongation of the long QT, as well as arrhythmia. Other general advice for those with congenital long QT include avoiding medications that prolong the QT interval, replacing electrolytes during vomiting and diarrheal illnesses, so especially low potassium and low magnesium and low calcium, managing fevers very promptly because fevers themselves are a stressor and we don't want to cause a longer QT, And also very careful use of diuretics because they have a risk of electrolyte disturbance. Finally, when on treatment, those with long QT syndrome can resume participation in physical activity and sports. 
However, the amount of professional sport is a bit of a contentious issue and the guidelines between sports and between governing bodies is varied. You know what that means. Let's have a recap. Congenital long QT syndrome is a disorder of ventricular myocardial repolarization. It's a channelopathy characterized by long QT intervals that predispose to ventricular arrhythmias and increased risk of sudden cardiac death. It is one of the most common channelopathies, with a prevalence of about 1 in 2,000 live births. Mutations in about 17 genes have been identified, but 80% are accounted for by the three main mutations in KCNQ1, KCNH2, and SCN5A. The first is long QT1, which is a potassium channelopathy. The second is long QT2, which is another potassium channelopathy. And last is congenital long QT3, which is a sodium channelopathy. Those channelopathies cause prolongation in the repolarization of cardiac muscles, which is in phase three, which leads to a long QT interval. And a long QT interval increases the chance of early after depolarizations. Early after depolarizations increase the chance of triggered activity, which can cause additional action potentials, ventricular premature depolarizations, and initiate polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. The textbook presentation of long QT is unexplained or arrhythmogenic syncope, arrhythmogenic syncope followed by generalized seizures, cardiac arrest preceded by exercise or emotion, or sudden cardiac death. Noting that a lot of people are diagnosed asymptomatically on surveillance ECG or if they are tested genetically due to a family member who's been diagnosed with long QT. While the majority of cases of long QT are autosomal dominant, a very important autosomal recessive cause is Jivell-Lang-Nielsen syndrome, which presents less than three years of age with profound sensory neural deafness and a higher risk of sudden cardiac death. ECG may show a long QT interval, and a QT interval that is prolonged through the five minutes of recovery after exercise is highly suggestive of long QT1. The classic arrhythmia associated with long QT is torsade de point of polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. Genetic testing is available for the three main genes that cause congenital long QT, and those two tests can be guided by their Schwartz score or if they have an already diagnosed family member. Universal beta blocker therapy for all patients with congenital long QT syndrome, regardless of symptomology, is what is recommended. Other general advice includes avoiding medications that prolong QT, replacing electrolytes promptly, managing fevers, using diuretics very carefully, and finally reassuring them that when on treatment, they can resume physical activity. And that's been this week's episode of A Spoonful of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. For the visual learners of us out there, head over to our Instagram page at spoonful.of.medicine for a quick summary of today's episode, along with some other great educational content. If you'd like to get in touch, have a suggestion for a future episode, or have heard something that you think needs a correction, please email us on spoonfulofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode. But until then, bye.